This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 10th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm joined by Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. This week, we're also joined by Beatrice Grinstein. Beatrice is an infectious disease specialist and heads the STD AIDS Clinical Research Laboratory at Brazil's Evandro Chagas National Institute of Infectious Diseases, Fiocruz. She's been deeply involved in international research and this year, she was presented with the Ward-Kate Spirit Award by the HIV Prevention Trials Network to honor her work with vulnerable populations. During the COVID-19 epidemic, she's played an important role in clinical trials of vaccination. Beatrice, we're looking forward to your perspective on COVID-19 in Brazil. But before we get there, let's talk about a study that we published this week on vaccination of children. We talked about this when it came before the FDA Advisory Committee a couple of weeks ago. But now we have the results of the trial on which both FDA and CDC approvals were based. How did this trial work and what did we learn from it? The study was set up very much like earlier studies that extended vaccines to younger age groups. The trial used BNT162b2, the Pfizer vaccine. The one important difference from an earlier study in adolescents was that for this group of children aged 5 to 11, the dose of vaccine was decreased. This dose was chosen in a small phase two dose finding study that's part of this report. Based on the results, the investigators chose a dose of 10 micrograms, which induced a good antibody response with relatively little reactogenicity. That's the term given to short-term side effects like local pain and swelling and the systemic symptoms like headache and fever, all of which resolve within a few days of vaccination. With that information in hand, the researchers randomized more than 2,200 children two to one to receive either the vaccine or placebo and followed them for a median of a little over two months. As in prior studies, the goal was an immunobridging study to see if the immune responses seen in these children were similar to those seen in young adults. Indeed, that is what they found with antibody responses by a variety of measures looked almost identical to those seen in young adults. Furthermore, they followed children for the development of symptomatic disease. This was a relatively short study. Nevertheless, they did see a total of 19 cases that occurred at least a week after the second dose of study drug. 16 of these were in the placebo recipients, and keeping in mind that more participants were randomized to the vaccine arm, this calculated out to a vaccine efficacy of about 90%. Importantly, while there was reactogenicity, which was pretty similar to what's seen in adult recipients, there were no significant adverse events. It's important to keep in mind, however, this is a relatively small sample. So what should we make of all this? Taken all together, I find these results to be pretty reassuring. When you look at these results together with the results presented to the FDA, which included a larger number of children who received open-label vaccine to evaluate safety, it appears that the vaccine is both safe and effective in this group. Of course, the size of the group means that we won't see more unusual adverse events. In particular, myocarditis, which has been seen in young adults, occurs at a frequency which is too low to be seen in a group this size. Nevertheless, given the risk estimates for myocarditis based on adolescents and young adults, and the relative lack of severity of most of these cases of myocarditis, both the FDA and the CDC felt that the benefits clearly outweighed the risks among this group of children. Eric, as we've discussed before, the primary readouts of the main studies, which we saw end of last year in large 30,000, 40,000-person studies with efficacy endpoints, were very helpful for us as a community to understand the efficacy of these vaccines. One of the key issues that emerged from those data 
which had an efficacy that surprised all of us being so exceptionally high, is how do we then extend these benefits to other populations that were not studied? And one of these key populations is pediatric, as we are looking at here. And one of the key mechanisms to extend the benefits to these populations that were not in the primary studies is immunobridging. And that is a very important parameter to help us efficiently determine the likelihood of efficacy in other populations. And the data demonstrated here showing antibody responses that were comparable, if not a little bit better, to those seen in other populations where efficacy has been established is very encouraging. Of course, short-term data in smaller populations don't tell us about the duration of the immunity, the studies done here looking predominantly at humoral or antibody responses don't fully explore breadth and depth of the immune response, T-cell responses. However, given the global pandemic and the need to move quickly, efficient study designs like this that incorporate the phase two dose finding with the phase three immunobridging are what's needed to move quickly. And all of the data in this report is consistent with what we know in general as to the likely efficacy of this vaccine in this population. The safety issue is very difficult, as you suggest, where rare events, such as one in a million events, can't be seen until we immunize several million individuals to be able to have a chance of seeing those rare events. So with 1,500 or more children immunized, a one in 500 rate is likely excluded. And as more children are immunized, it becomes easier to expand our understanding of safety. But the uncertainties in the safety and the uncertainties in the efficacy, both of which are very small, have to be weighed against wild type infection. And there we are all well aware of how severe COVID can be, particularly in adults and immunocompromised, but also in children. And the CDC and other public health agencies have provided data demonstrating that illness can be quite severe in our children. And even in this report, with an 8-9% background seropositivity, it demonstrates that transmission is going on in the children, and some percent of them will have severe illness. And this type of tool has the potential to dramatically decrease that risk. So, Lindsay, I wanted to address two of the points that you made just now. First. I totally agree that this study provides us with an unusual opportunity to test the immunobridging hypothesis. The hypothesis is that antibody responses that look similar to those seen in previous studies are going to produce similar levels of efficacy. The numbers are really small, and this study was not designed to look at efficacy. Nevertheless, the efficacy number that came out of those small numbers is identical to those seen in other studies. So that does provide support for the idea that immunobridging makes sense. There's been a lot of discussion about how rare diseases in children and how rare severe diseases in children. And all of that is true. Nevertheless, kids are dying and the side effects appear to be mild at best, at least from the study so far. So it's going to be very important to monitor the safety of this vaccine as it's rolled out to much larger numbers of children. But as you said, the 
risk benefit calculation, while maybe not as easy as it is for adults who have a higher rate of severe disease, is very much in favor of vaccinating this group of children. And Eric, I think your point about the breakthrough cases seen in this study, albeit a small number, as you said, are identical to the efficacy seen in larger adult studies. This line of evidence is very encouraging. And it's always a trade-off. The perfect study that takes a year or two with larger numbers to affirm what is highly likely to be true has a cost of all of the illness in those who have wild-type infection because we don't have a vaccine. So I think you're right. They are small numbers, but all the data are completely consistent with a high likelihood of high efficacy. Beatrice, I'd like to turn to you. COVID-19 has disproportionately affected Brazil. While most countries have had peaks and troughs of disease, Brazil hasn't yet really enjoyed the lulls that many other countries have seen. And estimates suggest that there have been more than 600,000 deaths in Brazil. So what's the situation like now? So first of all, thanks very much for the invitation. It's a true honor for me to be here with you. So the first cases in Latin America were reported in Brazil and Mexico back in February 2020. Despite representing only 8.4 of the world's population, Latin America accounts for 30% of COVID-related deaths throughout the world. And Brazil is the country that has been most affected by COVID-19 in the region. And it's also the largest and most populous country, but socioeconomically, it is one of the most unequal. So the country has the world's third largest number of COVID-19 confirmed cases and ranks second worldwide in the number of COVID-19 related deaths, despite representing only less than 3% of the global population. The response to COVID-19 in Brazil has been hampered by a very inadequately resourced health system, health and socioeconomic inequalities, and a very weak government capacity to organize a comprehensive pandemic response to these issues. Instead, we have been facing a brutal anti-science environment, major cuts in research resources, and during the entire pandemic, a failure of the federal government to adopt evidence-based and reliable public health measures, such as the use of masks and social distancing. In addition, there was a continuous spread of fake news aiming to negatively impact the population's credibility in science and public health measures. But despite all these hurdles, by June 2021, 88% of the Brazilian population wanted to be vaccinated. So currently, the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in Brazil is stable. In April 21, we had over 4,000 deaths daily during the gamma variant surge, and the incidents and deaths decreased until the Delta surge that initiated in June, when we had around 2,300 deaths daily. Since then, improvements in vaccinations had reduced the number of COVID-19 infections, leading to hospitalization or death. So by November 3rd, we had 164 deaths. So this is directly related to the progress of vaccination initiatives, which are strongly supported by most of the Brazilian population. So by October 27, 74.4% of our population has received at least one dose of vaccine, and 55% are fully vaccinated. 
So since mid-September also, booster doses have been approved for the elderly and subsequently expanded to healthcare workers with Pfizer-BioNTech as the preferential booster vaccine. And moreover, since mid-September, vaccination with the Pfizer-BioNTech for adolescents aged 12 to 17 was finally authorized by the Supreme Court after a lot of back and forth from the government. So these advances were possible due to the existence of the Brazilian National Immunization Program that is coordinated by the Ministry of Health in cooperation with states and municipal health departments. This program is actually a major strength of our health system, enabling the implementation of highly relevant health intervention and benefiting from its 36,000 vaccination room in over 5,000 Brazilian municipalities. So this allows for high-speed vaccination if vaccines are made available. So it's quite important to note that to reach long-term sustainability of the program, we must have the capability for self-sufficient domestic vaccine production. This is achieved by having the principal strategic products produced by our national public laboratories. And so encouraging domestic production through product development and also through the pursuit of partnerships with private laboratories aimed technology transfers to Brazil public laboratories. This approach has allowed our public laboratories to locally produce the main strategic vaccines for the country in the last century. So my institution, Fiocruz, started vaccine production over a century ago and currently produces yellow fever, tetravalent vaccine for diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, and hemophilus B, produces oral polio vaccine, inactivated polio vaccine, the tetravalent vaccine. And for COVID-19, Fiocruz produces the AstraZeneca vaccine and had delivered 121 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine by the end of October 2021. Also, the Butantan Institute produces Coronavac, and very recently, Pfizer signed an agreement for vaccine production in Brazil with Europharma, that is a private generic company. So the in-country vaccine manufacturing has been absolutely key for vaccination expansion. Brazil is a remarkably diverse country, not just ethnically and racially, but also geographically. What's been the impact of the COVID-19 outbreak on different subpopulations in the country? So this is a really great question. So despite being the ninth largest economy in the world, Brazil is also one of the most unequal countries worldwide. 20% of our population lives in poverty, and this situation has significantly worsened in the recent years. So vulnerable populations and minority groups tend to be more exposed to risks and have more barriers for accessing proper prevention and treatment. In addition, the recent process of dismantling public policies in the country harms public health actions and increases inequalities and injustice that more profoundly affect different segments of the population, the Afro-descendants, the indigenous people, women, the poor, among others. So aside from the tragic health situation, the economic crisis, which has already impacted the social achievements obtained in Brazil until 2013, gained a greater negative momentum in 2020 with the COVID-19 pandemic. So previously, hailed from its exemplary efforts to reduce hunger, Brazil is seeing a marked deterioration in food security indicators 
as the economic fallout for COVID-19 that deepens and a growing number of people struggle to afford a nutritional diet amid cuts in government aid. So Brazil was removed from the world's food program hunger map back in 2014 after a decade of progress towards reducing hunger. But less than seven years later, more than half of our 212 million population is grappling under some level of food insecurity with almost one in 10 people with serious hunger. This means that the success we have obtained from 2004 and 2013 in guaranteeing the human rights of adequate food was quickly canceled for a significant proportion of the population in a very short span of time. So the situation will potentially worsen after the interruption of our successful cash transfer program known as Bolsa Familia created 18 years ago which was pivotal in removing Brazil from the hunger map. Public policies have overlooked the Black and Indigenous people who are often vulnerable and suffer more from severe COVID outcomes. For instance, Black people with no schooling had a four times higher risk of dying from COVID-19. By August 2020, the accumulated lethality in Indigenous people due to severe acute respiratory syndrome resulting from COVID-19 in Brazil reached 41.8, exceeding the lethality in non-Indigenous people by almost 20%. And finally, the pandemic has affected Brazilian women in different ways. During the pandemic, reports of violation of women's rights and integrity increased by almost 40%, not to mention the enormous underreporting of the phenomenon of violence against women in Brazil. And also there was an increase in maternal mortality. In Brazil, until August 2021, there were almost 1,200 maternal deaths from COVID-19, representing 45.4% of maternal deaths from this cause recorded in the Americas. Beatrice, you have a lot of experience dealing with HIV. And in some ways, the disparities that you're describing sound like those for HIV as well. So how has your experience in dealing with the HIV epidemic helped you in coping with COVID-19? Thanks, Eric. So I think that it made all the difference for us dealing with the HIV epidemic to jump in and start working with COVID both in assistance and research. So it is exactly what you said. We are facing the COVID-19 pandemic being the hardest among the most vulnerable. That is exactly what we see in Brazil regarding the HIV epidemic. The HIV epidemic is a highly concentrated one among young MSM and transgender women, so highly vulnerable populations with insufficient access to the health system. And in both pandemics, stigma, discrimination, and insufficient attention to the most vulnerable have the same pattern. So for us, use it to deal with these characteristics of our HIV pandemic. It has been easier to cope with the COVID-19 pandemic. And we see a lot of common situation between both pandemics. We also have changed gears to incorporate COVID-19 research in our research agendas and the infrastructure in place that we had, for instance, at Fiocruz, 
was instrumental for us to quickly move into COVID-19 research, specifically in several areas, but very importantly, testing vaccines to rapidly have products to be delivered in our system. So everything came together and allowed us to have concerted response to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, as I said, the major hurdles we have with the government and back and forth. So we are not only dealing with the force of this pandemic, but also we are dealing on a daily basis with fake news. And we need to put a lot of energy to fight this entire political situation that is embedded in our pandemic. Beatrice. Just to pick up a bit on your comments earlier about how hard Brazil has been hit by this pandemic, one of the things that we've struggled with in the U.S. has been diagnostics, personal protective equipment, masks, ways to decrease transmission through other means. How are those types of control measures viewed and utilized? And is the ability to test and diagnose this easily available or is that still challenging? The situation regarding diagnosis has improved a lot along the last 22 months, but we still have restrictions on testing. But actually, it has improved significantly as we are also producing locally kits for diagnosis. So when we got to this place of starting local production, the testing availability largely improved. So The same with the vaccines. When we have local production, we have extended capacity in place to test. So this has improved along the time as well. Regarding the self-protection, use of masks, as I mentioned before, there is a lot of daily messages from the government that undermine the credibility of the population on the social measures and masking and social distancing. So I think that this is a major issue for us as we could have had a much better improvement in our cases and deaths simply adopting those measures. But the government response was against all of this. So this impaired a lot our COVID-19 response. Beatrice, I think the point you raise, which is emerging for me as one of the themes over the last 22 months of this pandemic, has been the ability to enable local capacity, local capacity for manufacturing tests, for manufacturing vaccines, for manufacturing treatments. And that's something we as a global community will need to think a lot about is what type of capacity do we have in place and where to be able to respond to these types of events. And I think that's been a real shortcoming of our global preparedness that will require some reflection and investment. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And as I said, our capacity in place to produce kits and vaccines has been instrumental for us to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. So it made all the difference that we have prepared ourselves to be able to produce locally and not to depend on purchases only. So even with the major impact the COVID-19 pandemic has in our country, it would have been much worse if we didn't have the capacity in place to manufacture both vaccines and kits. And as you said, although vaccines arrived relatively late in Brazil, there's been very good uptake since. 
In the United States, we have only three vaccines approved, but in Brazil, there are five registered and four being used. So you spoke a bit about the use of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but more broadly, how are those four being deployed? Is there a system to help determine which vaccine is used in which circumstances? As you said, we have started late the vaccination campaign right after exceeding 200,000 confirmed deaths in the country. So due to limitation in vaccine supplies during the first months of the campaign, priority of given, as in other places, to those at higher risk of severe disease, the elderly, those with chronic health conditions and disabled, other vulnerable populations, healthcare workers, and lastly, essential workers. So vaccines were subsequently extended to the entire population in sequential order given by decreasing age. So the nationwide vaccination campaign started with two main vaccines, and the deployment of the vaccines have been completely related to the vaccine availability. So we started with CoronaVac, buying CoronaVac from the Sinovac vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine from the Oxford University. So these vaccines, as I said, were initially imported due to the immediate need, the demand, but were later produced by Instituto Butantan in Sao Paulo and the Fiocruz in Rio de Janeiro. We were able to have the completed vaccination after 28 days for the coronavac. And for the AZ vaccine, we used a 12-week interval. And by the end of April, then we started having access to the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine, which was integrated in the regular immunization distribution, also with a 12-week interval between doses. I think it's important to understand that these intervals also had an impact for us to fully realize the benefits of the vaccination somehow. And by June 2021, the AD26 Janssen vaccine was also integrated into the national immunization program. So the doses, that's a very important feature, have been administered solely by the public health system and all vaccination is recorded in a single electronic database managed by the Ministry of Health. Currently, the AstraZeneca has the highest number of doses administered in Brazil, followed by CoronaVac, which represents around 30% of the doses. So Astra is 42%. And Pfizer has been increasing in the latest months and is now at 26%. And Janssen stays at a small proportion of vaccines being deployed in Brazil. So most of the deployment has been according to the availability of the vaccines. There is a central committee that establishes the ways that vaccines will be deployed. For instance, for pregnant women, we don't use AstraZeneca. We use mostly Pfizer vaccines for pregnant women. So there are these specific situations and these are decided by this central advisory committee for vaccination. And now we can already see the benefits of the program. And I can mention two major manuscripts that are out there. One is a preprint by Dr. Claudio Struciner, Fundação Getúlio Vargas, in collaboration with Fiocruz researchers. And it was recently posted in Med Archives. And it summarizes a national cohort of 66.3 million records of COVID-19 vaccinations from the Brazilian National Immunization Program. And it has coupled information from 
severe COVID-19 cases and deaths, all aggregated by state and age group to evaluate COVID-19 cases and deaths among vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. And this study reported on estimates of vaccine effectiveness by vaccine platform and age group from mid-January to mid-July 2021 and showed that there is a lot of benefit for the Brazilian population. However, these results suggest significant specific reduction in effectiveness by age. For example, people over the age of 80 who were vaccinated with coronavirus clearly had worse outcomes. So all of these results also changed the way the vaccines have been deployed. For instance, as we move for boosting, we have already started boosting and back in about a month ago, and those who were older and vaccinated with CoronaVac were prioritized in the booster program. So another big database analysis that is championed by Professor Manuel Bajau and his group from Fiocruz Bahia, they provided follow-up data from individuals vaccinated with CoronaVac, which showed a progressive increase in the rate ratio of hospitalization and death rates compared to the period of two weeks after the second dose. So after about 10 weeks of completed vaccination, the rate ratio doubles for hospitalization and death. The same has been observed among those vaccinated with AZ, however, starting from a much lower level than with coronavirus. Beatrice, I think that it is fascinating to hear the story of how things evolved in Brazil over this year. And it seems to be an intersection between available therapies, so manufacturing and what is deliverable, and emerging science, and using the emerging science to continue to improve what we do. And it is frustrating that we don't get it right from the get-go. But the reality is, is the science has to happen for us to know what is correct and how to optimize the tools that we have. And it's refreshing to hear how the science is going on to better inform our choices, your choices. But I think of this as a global problem. So if Brazil is in a better place in responding to this, so is the rest of the world. And I think hearing the science in action is terrific. Yes, science moves everything. And it has been amazing to see the progresses that we had in science during this terrible 22 months. And we could have been in a better situation for more time than we are. And this has been highly impacted by the anti-science movement that our government has. So even though with this movement that is to undermine the population understanding about science, even with all of these hurdles, we have been able to start overcoming this pandemic exactly by using science as the way to move forward. Here in the United States, political opinions have had a substantial effect on vaccine uptake and other protective measures. And as you've just said, this is an issue in Brazil as well. Given that, what sort of strategies have you seen that have been helpful in getting vaccines accepted by the population at large, at getting protective measures accepted by the population? So I think there's no doubt that the lack of coordination of an effective response combined by the anti-science movement 
of our government had an important impact in the advance of the COVID-19 pandemic in Brazil. As I said, we have a very good history of immunization in our country. And given the successes of our Brazilian immunization program, many diseases have become unknown to the general population so that some people have no idea of the danger that they represent, which results in the risk of reintroduction or recrudescence of diseases that had been controlled or eradicated in the country. A new phenomenon emerged, and as you said, not only in Brazil, but in various countries that are falling short of the targets for vaccination coverage, especially since 2016. For example, the low vaccination coverage rates for childhood vaccination with the triple viral vaccine in recent years, especially in 2018, reaching a vaccination coverage of 92.6% for the first dose and only 77% for the second dose highly contributed to the accumulation of susceptible individuals and the resurgence of measles the same year in which more than 10,000 cases were reported in the country. As a result, Brazil lost its certification as a territory free of autochthonous measles virus circulation, which the country had been awarded in 2016. So the reduction of vaccination coverage rates in recent years cannot be attributed to a single cause, but rather to multiple factors, such as vaccine hesitancy, fake news, especially via social networks on harms of vaccines for health, partial shortages of some products, and also operational problems. In previous emergency situations, such as the H1N1 epidemic, governmental campaigns elicited a very good response in vaccination. At this time, we haven't seen any country developed campaigns on the major importance of vaccination for the individual and for the broader community. So again, we could be in a better position if we had more incentives for vaccination. So we are missing these big campaigns at this time, but anyway, we are being able to move forward with expanding uh, vaccination in Brazil despite all we have in place. I must say, Beatrice, that you have had a remarkably good amount of uptake in the country, despite a lot of political opposition to vaccination. I certainly give you and your fellow scientists a lot of credit for helping pave the way. So I do think that it's very important to highlight that the beautiful history that we have from our national immunization program is the basis of this large acceptance in our population of the COVID-19 vaccination. So we have a beautiful history of vaccine deployment for multiple diseases without any cost for the population. So it has deep trust of our population in our vaccination system that is now being realized with the COVID-19 vaccination expansion. So this is a major asset that we have and that is certainly helping to overcome all the resistance in place from other sources. So this victory is a victory from our people. Thank you very much, Beatrice, for joining us this week. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.